These tools are for you to do. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I'm a comedian in Chicago, and I survived a coma, and now I'm asking all sorts of people questions about how to live life, the meaning of life. I I try to avoid saying the meaning of life, but that's what the show's about. I mean, why, why fight it, you know? My guest this week is Dylan Rodriguez who is just cool as shit, man. He's a founding member of Critical Resistance, the organization that was founded to abolish the carceral state. I became aware of him when he spoke at uh, one of these Zoom panels I went to about police abolition And then I checked him out on the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast. I've linked to that in the show notes because it was a great introduction. I post just the raw audio uh, on the Patreon. You can get that if you donate the cost of a cup of coffee a month, $5. Now, I will just say I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dylan Rodriguez as much as I did. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatar when I'm in Shatar. I'll, I'll be curious what you think of this. Okay, so over the pandemic, I got into Survivor, um, mm. which is at the time it was forty seasons, and I watched them in four months. Woo! Which is just a, a like a kind of a marker of depression, I think. Sort That's of a commitment. Yeah. yeah, it's a literal. Yeah. I, I measured it out. It's a forty-hour-a-week job with. With I was gonna say I was just trying days. to do the math in my head. It's you too just much, it, you man. It's too much. Short, and like, so, oh my god, how much but, time is that? So it's it's too much time. But uh, I love the show, obviously. But one of the like all time great players is a cop. And when mm. I found when I started mm. just kind of you know in icebreaker conversations in political spaces. Mm. I would mention Survivor or something. And then people would DM me and be like, oh, I love Survivor too, but fuck Tony. And the thing I had to admit was, I actually, as a player, I yeah. I like yeah. this guy. you know. Yeah. And to yeah. me, it's more interesting to reckon with the fact that I enjoy this personality on this fucking yeah. island. Yeah, yeah. Than yeah. to just than to just go, he's a cop, and thus, therefore, I experience yeah. all pop culture through the yeah. lens of my. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and your response is an honest one. Um, and, right. You know, which it, is not to say I'm like, one. oh, you know, I like this guy. Maybe I like cops. No, you know, that's not yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Stay. No, 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 not at all, not at all. I hear. No, I think I think the point you're making is a really it's really critical in ways that you may or may not fully fully realize here. Because on the one hand, there is the kind of knee jerk scripted reaction, which is like, all right, fuck that cop, right? Once you realize right. the dude is a cop, yes, right? Yes, like, yes. oh, you might have been you might have been team Tony guy's name. I'm not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tony. Team yeah, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Might have been team Tony. He realized he realized he was you know one of the warriors in blue, right? Like, oh, fuck that guy. However, your response actually indicates just how powerful the culture of propaganda actually has become, right? That, that 
cop propaganda is so much more than just cops, the reality, the original, the original reality show, right? Mm -hmm. It's so much more than what network and corporate news media put out there. That is kind of a unilateral flow of information and representation from police and district attorney to the public. It is actually popular cultural maneuverings that, that put cops into these kind of civilian lovable, you know, game playing situations where you actually are drawn into identification with them to the point you're actually cheering for them. Most importantly, we over this term is overused. It's not one I usually use, but in this case, I will use it. It humanizes them, mm-hmm. right? Humanize is usually a liberal term that people will invoke to think about um, some kind of short term uh, practice that will mitigate, but not necessarily solve systemic state and other forms, capitalist and other forms of violence, colonial, other forms of violence against oppressed people, right? So they'll talk about, we need to humanize homeless people. We need to humanize incarcerated people. So it's a bullshit term usually, right? Because it actually doesn't mean anything, you know, like humanize it because what it presumes is that you did not, you you may or may not have thought about these people as human prior. And then the problem is actually you, right? So the project is not to humanize those, those people over there. Your project is actually um, to do some serious reflection in community with other people so that you can find some access to a form of humanity where you're not act- actively dehumanizing people, right? So you're right. actually the problem because right. you're actually involved in the practice of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the problem is not that they need to be humanized. You need to stop dehumanizing. All right. So there's that. However, in the realm of propaganda, like this thing you just experienced, right? It seems so fucking mundane. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. fuck it. It's a game show. Dude happens to have a cop. He's a cop as a day job. Um, I think he was a great player in this game show, whatever. It's it's the it's this kind of culture of humanizing people who are in a position where they're actually extra human. Right. And that shit is powerful. That that is that is that is yeah. the stage of propaganda yeah. and counterinsurgency that I don't think a lot of folks, especially activist scholars and others. Right. I don't think a lot of folks have their minds fully around that, um, which is why it is that you have this bullshit going on with the New York City mayor, for example. Right. Right. I mean, what? Uh, the bullshit going on, for example, with the Chicago mayor. So you have people who present a certain subject position that attracts identification and, and like the role that they're actually performing is if it's not active repression, it's at least counterinsurgency. Right. And the way it works is through is through people, the way in which they draw people into identification with them, including rooting for them on a game show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it isn't the whole fucking world turning into a game show anyways. You know what I mean? Like if we think about if we think about everything from electoral politics to the day to day, the way people consume and process that shit, it's like these fuckers are characters in a game show. So the one you root for is the one you identify with. Right. And then you're willing to do this this kind of liberal bullshit work of humanizing them against their extra human role in the world, which is to police. Right. You know, what I mean, it's to oppress. It's to it's to maintain and militarize borders and hierarchies between populations of people. Um, oftentimes, the very people whom are identifying them most powerful with them most powerfully. Um, me- meaning, you know, in Chicago, right? Like this is the Black radical and revolutionary and feminist and queer and abolitionist community that I'm that I'm in community with in Chicago, right? That's their biggest battle, is with this is with this kind of version of of mainstreamed, popularized, um, common Black folks identification with Mayor Lightfoot. Yeah. Right. Which is weird, which is weird, you know, and it's, and, and, but I'm saying I'm picking up Villaraigosa when he was mayor, you know, when he was in LA, right. Like that was some deep shit going on with the lo- local Latinx, you know, Central American, Mexicano, Chicano community. 
it, it's deep. It, it's everywhere. It's deep. And so what you're talking about is symptomatic of this kind of popular cultural form that uh, the culture of policing has taken as, as this deep counterinsurgency where folks are actively drawn into the practice of humanizing people who inhabit an extra human power. Yeah, you're talking about humanization, not from the liberal lift them up to humanity, but from this other perspective of draw them down from gods to humanity. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and it's about you identifying with them uh, in in order to mystify their inhabitation, the way in which they perform extra human power all the time. Right. And, and like, look, if you if you talk to former military, former police, right, especially people who have like left those positions because of disaffection, because of mental health, because they were kicked out, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and, and I don't think this is just anecdotal. I think this is structural. Almost probably almost to a person when they're being honest with you, they will say that the daily that the daily practices uh, the daily kind of you know state um, bestowed responsibilities and obligations of bearing the power of being extra human, right? God power, you know what I mean? Like God power, right? Right? The, the license to kill, you know what I mean? Um, knowing that the law was behind them, that culture was behind them, all that shit, right? That that stuff was not sustainable for them, you know, in really serious ways, right? Like, and not not only that, but. But dude, Tony, that was on Survivor, right? Like he's never not a cop, right? Yeah. And that's part of that part. That's part of what's insidious about the humanizing, uh, the humanizing dynamics that happen with with these forms of cop propaganda. Copaganda is is that it's a sham to think that people who um, police and military, you know, engage in militarization, forms of militarization, policing for, for a living, that they somehow step out of that power when they're not on the clock. It doesn't work that way. And that is the main thing you hear from folks, right? It's like, I never was not in that state of mind is what people will say, right? Right. And it affected my relationships with people. Um, This is why I think it's at this point, a pretty well-known, you know, popular fact, which is that, that, um, you know, people that are in the military and police, and by the way, not just cisgender men, but people in the military and police have, you know, some of the highest rates of um, harm, you know, committing harm against other people, particularly the, the traditional category of so-called domestic violence, but you right. want to talk about so-called domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence, but also self-harm, mm. right? Su- suicidality, ideations, um, people who are, you know, alcoholism, et cetera. I mean, that shit is deep and there's a reason for it. It's because, because the burden of taking on that role actually, um, it's extra human. It's extra human. You are not, it, you know, you, you should not be bearing that power um th- those who are most comfortable with it are usually fucking sociopaths <laughs> you know yeah. um I'm, I'm not and i mean that in the clinical no way, no right? no I'm not for a sure trained yeah. psychologist, but like it's usually sociopaths who are like most um comfortable with that and can carry it out for a long time right because nobody can compartmentalize that shit right you can't really compartmentalize power that way the light question i like to start with is paint your hell Customized hell designed for you, Dylan Rodriguez. I often think that I'm actually in it, right? I'll say that. And not because I personally individually am in it, which I try not to do. I try to disassociate myself from just purely individualized notions of hell. I think hell is a collective condition. Um, And I think 
there are so many geographies and places on this planet that are already, I'm Filipino, right? So like, you know, I'm, I'm the first one that was born stateside in my family. Mm. There are places a few miles from where my father's family is, by the way, upper middle class in the Philippines still means you have five families living in the same house, right? Sure, it's not the, sure. it's not the same as, 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 as in the U S. So like I say that with a global South third world colonial concept, you know, neo-colonial concept, upper middle class, just means you fucking got access to college is what it really means. Uh, there are places in the Philippines, not far from my, where my, my father's family still lives that, that are hell. They, they are absolute hell. Um, there are places not far from me here, man. Um, that, that, that are hell. So, but, but with that, I'll try to entertain your question and take it. So I'll say, I'll say hell, hell is anything I inhabit, which is demoralizing. And I, and I was thinking through this, uh, as I was talking just now about the collective concept of hell, I'm thinking about like, what would it mean for me? Right. You're asking me a really personal question. So I'm trying to take it that way. Right. Yeah. So like, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, now that I've, now that I've kind of contextualize my answer by saying, all right, fuck individualism, but okay, let me go to that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let me go with that. So, so I think hell is any, any situation in which I am feeling the forces of demoralization and, and, and the truest hell for me is when I can no longer identify the external forces that are trying, that are demoralizing me. And I've internalized it mm. and I've begun, I've begun to just reproduce my own demoralization it's just it just it just starts to feel embedded and wired into my existence so I, i've been there many times you know what i mean i've been there what's many an times. example it's, of that um hypocrisy um kind of the political hypocrisy and the political inaction of so many people who pro, who who would have you think that they're otherwise um and i think that's come up in, in even more conspicuous ways since the rebellions of 2020, um, in the age of social media, uh, and the fact that so much of the rebellion that happened globally in 2020, uh, much of it was also happening in sites either on or adjacent to university, college, and junior college, for that matter, even some K through 12 campuses, right? Students were involved, like teachers involved, sometimes, you know, um, administrators, every now and then they would profess solidarity with the rebellions mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, but I think what's really demoralizing as well is uh, to just see the depth of the neglect and contradiction between the curated performances that so many people, especially my colleagues, have around issues of liberation, of justice, of abolition, um, of opposing normalized systemic historical state violence, like the performances of that shit, right? Being, being loud as fuck about it, putting it on their social media, putting it on their websites, putting it in their syllabi even. And, and then two simultaneous things. One is the refusal to engage in collective forms of activity to directly challenge those structures of violence. Collective, I, I emphasize yeah. collective forms of activity. It's not a fucking individual academic research agenda. It's not a CV point. It's not a, you know, a social media identity collective because the collective part's hard. All right. So one is that. And then secondly, the willingness of so many of these same folks. And now I'm not just talking about my colleagues. I'm talking about people that are involved in the kind of the nonprofit industrial complex world, right? People who are basically professional activists, so to speak, right? Professional advocates and activists. Right how many of the folks from those two overlapping communities are willing to be drawn into administrative, um, administrative rituals, administrative ceremonies, administrative committees that 
that have that, that are actively stealing the language of, of abolition, of anti-colonialism, of black radicalism, you know, of revolution, and and repurposing it toward a re-legitimation of things like the policing and carceral and criminal justice and military and colonial apparatus, right? You know, so so that that shit is demoralizing. That's hell. So in a lot of ways, I'm in it, right? So in, it, so look, man, like to respond to this question in in, a, in another way, I feel like a lot of the work I, I do as as a thinker, as a writer, as a teacher, as an activist is is in response to the hell that I, I am feeling around me. You know, um, I think it's part of the reason why I'm so animated by really deep anger. <laughs> um, that's that's my main. That's the main way I think in which I'm wired, and I'm, I'm actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm good with that. Like I. I've said it a lot publicly lately, but, you know, I, I, I fucking had to go through a year anger management counseling. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is years, seven years ago or so, because the option was that I was going to get kicked out of my house. Right. I mean, straight up, I was going to kick that. It was like, you need to. So I did it. I did it for like a year. Right. And it was just, it was a typical, you know, prototypical like group anger management counseling. Yeah. But, but what brought me into it was when the counselors the first day, they're like, they said, the reason you're here is because you have to be here. We understand that. But we're going to tell you right now, there's actually nothing wrong with anger. I was like, okay, cool. I'm in then. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Um, but I feel like that's, I, I have a role to play on this, you know, in this realm while I'm here. And, and, and my anger will be central to the way in which I try to fulfill whatever role that might be at the time. Right. And, and that anger is, that anger comes from my, the, the, the different ways in which I experience these forces of demoralization um, for me and for others around me. What do you hope happens when you die? I was thinking a lot about this when I, when I learned about your podcast and you invited me, right? I was like, oh, fuck, man. I think about, I think about, here's what's funny though. This is why it's hard to answer. I think about death all the time. Okay. I do. I think about death all the time. I'm fucking, we're surrounded by that shit, right? And I think part of the culture we're in, this culture of narcissism, this culture of, you know, uh, hegemonic and dominant Christianity, et cetera, um, it, it, it kind of does not encourage us to think about death, Right. Right. Yeah. Like it's it's it does not encourage that. But I think about it all the fucking time. I think about mortality all the fucking time. Um, In what I don't way? Think, you're thinking about well, other people. You're thinking about your own because it yeah. part of it is yeah. for me is I would love if I had some guest that was a, that fucking cured me of the panic I think of when I think of not. Existing. Yo, so so like so like the panic. It's anxiety for me more than panic, like mm-hmm. at this point, because I still have it in my mind, like in my heart that I'm still 29 years old. Even though I'm going to be 49 this year. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, fuck, okay. I'm still invincible and shit, even though I'm not because I wake up and my back hurts. Right. And, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but 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 part of part of this, the reason I, you know, the reason I think about death so much. Is that we're in this weird culture of narcissism, right, where, where we think that our death should actually mean something. I'm talking about each of us, mm-hmm. right? We think that our death, that, you know, you think your death, that it should, that it needs to mean something. I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that that's the, that that's the question that we should be living under. You feel me? Like, like that, that my death should mean something. Um, what is the question? Okay. So the question is this, like, this is, this is what's encouraged and empowered and motivated and, and in some ways consumed me for, my whole adult life, which is, I am honored to have the opportunity to engage in the fights and the struggles and, you know, the collective labor that I get to participate in. That's it. I'm honored to be part 
of those different communities of people, as flawed as they might be, right? And I know this all sounds romantic as shit, right? But I'm saying this, like, I've been engaged in the struggle for 25 something, I mean, shit, man, I'm 40, like 30 years, right? I know how fucked up it is. We make mistakes. Like sometimes we are abusive toward each other, right? Sometimes we have the wrong agenda. We use the wrong language. We have people in our organizations who are fucked up and we should have known they were fucked up. We should have fucking kicked them out. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm saying like in, a, in, the most, in the most real way possible, right? Knowing how contradictory, how mistake ridden, how flawed all that shit is, right? That the, the thing that, 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 that draws me toward people is an affinity to fucking fight. Like that's what I want. That's... That's how I live. A lot of folks enter these communities of struggle with a misled notion of what freedom and justice actually are, that there's some kind of end state that you achieve. Um, and then it, you know, and, and then and then it's, you know, sushi buffets every day for all of us. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. by the way, that's sushi buffet every day. Like, that's my version of like, I, I grew up Catholic, man. Like, I don't believe in heaven anymore. Yeah, I'm a yeah, former yeah. Catholic. But yeah. if there was a heaven, mine would be fucking sushi every fucking day because I can do it. <laughs> okay. okay. I can do it. The challenge. Um, I like that. You feel me? Like I could do that. I could do that. Uh, but, but I'm saying, but I'm saying, I'm saying like, this is, this is really what we're getting at. Right. I mean, this is, this is what we're really saying is that, is that it's not just the continuity of the fight. And I'm saying the fight, I hope people can understand what I mean by that at this point. Right. It's not just fight for anything. It's like, no collective, collective, yeah. com- you know, people who are trying to struggle to create futurity for each other, for themselves, for other people around them that they care about and love. Um, it, it's, it's not even, I don't hope for that because I already know that that yeah. shit is beyond me. Right. I don't fuck it doesn't need my hope. Yeah. Hope is for Obama. You know, <laughs> fuck hope. I don't need hope. Um, even if I'm miserable and demoralized, like what lifts me are, are people around me that are like, dude, what's wrong with you? Right? You all right? Like, are you all right? Like, you seem down, man. Like, we're over yeah. here doing this. Why don't you hook up? You've been watching if 40 seasons ha- of Survivor, man. You'll you know think. what I'm saying? Like, she, see what I'm saying? <laughs> like, 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 like one of my dear friends was here yesterday and and remind me, he's like, hey, yo, we're having a barbecue over there at, at so-and-so's on Saturday. You going? I hadn't like I hadn't RSVP'd yet. And this is one of the communities I'm engaged with, right? Mm. It's this community of folks that are creating a department of black study here, um, which is fucking 50 years overdue. Um and it, it, it is one of those moments that kind of lived in like, ah oh, shit, yeah. Like I'm, you know, because I'm I'm not totally demoralized. I wasn't in a moment of being totally demoralized, but I was like, you know, modestly just kind of down. And it was like, no, 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 this is this is one of these communities of people whom I love, who I'm whom I, who I fight alongside, sometimes fight with, but mostly fight alongside. Um, and, and it was like, yeah, here we're, we're convening, man, like we're, we're having a moment of intentional celebration and joy. You know, what I mean, and mm-hmm. can we, like, we're building community with these. It's like she's reminding me one sentence like, hey, you come. I'm like, Fuck, yeah, yeah, I got to go. Yeah, I got I'm coming to that. So like I right away, I was like, hey, I'm coming to that shit. Um, so I'm saying like, that's the fight, too. That barbecue is the fight, man. Like that's part of the fight man. right there, right? You're keeping each other alive. You're feeding each other. You're talking shit with each other and to each other. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say the fight. Well, my next question is, is born directly out of uh, my last one man show that gave birth to this podcast. And the, the show is set in the afterlife and I'm introducing people to features of this afterlife. One of these features is you get to fully relive one memory. It's just like a room that you can pop into and out of yeah. whatever you want. But but unlike other memories, you're you're in it. But you have to pick one. So if that's the case, what memory do you choose to relive? I'm only 48 years old, man. Like, isn't it too early for you to ask me this? Man, you're like one of the <laughs> oldest people I've ever had on this podcast, man. Oh, that's fucked up. You better, you better get with up. it, dude. That's fucked up. <laughs> that's fucked up. 
You better leave that shit in the podcast so people know how fucked up you are. You just said I'm one of the oldest people. That's hey, fucked up. Hey, man, I'm one of the oldest people on this podcast as well. Yeah, but you're the host, man. You just – shit. I'll leave, I'll leave it in. Up, I'll leave it in for you. I'll make this the, I'll make this the, uh, the promo. Oh, that hurt, that hurt me in my, in my insides that you just said that. How about this then? As a fuck you back, Dave. As a fuck you back. As a fuck you back. I can't answer your question. Because I'm too young to experience that memory yet. Okay, it's too well, early. If you it's want your early. episode to be that short, then sure, you can <laughs> you can say "fuck you" to that question like that. No, no. Okay, let me let me let me let me really get at it. Um, the one, so it would be it would be one particular moment that I could I could revisit, like Groundhog Day, right? Like I could just come back into it. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great. You can do it like Groundhog Day if you want to do it a little differently each time. You know what keeps coming to my mind is this this momentous event that that I think is one of the one of the many points of origin and invigoration of of, of late twentieth and twenty first century abolition, which is the critical resistance, the first critical resistance meeting um, at, at UC Berkeley in nineteen ninety eight. So so if I'm allowed to be back there for those three days, September twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, nineteen ninety eight. Right during that conference, they called it a conference. It wasn't a conference. It was like that was a movement building moment. It was like three and a half, four thousand people were there from all over the place, man. Wow, like, this, it, it, it was. I it imagine it's so much smaller. That's interesting. oh no, no, it was it was nuts in the most beautiful way, man. Like I mean, people, all kind of people, not unregistered for the conference, just showing up and fucking with UC Berkeley's campus, like in the best ways. It was awesome. I mean, people like there's sectarian organizations like about like actually getting into fistfights with each other on the you know, and then and then it it was it was like that. It was a movement building session, like in that kind of way, right? Where people were like arguing, they had political beasts with each other. It was like that. So, so I'll say, I'll say, I'll give a two, I'll give a two layer answer to your question. I think if I was allowed an extended moment, I think I'd want to be back there so I could appreciate it. And then if I had to pick, so that's the first layer. If I had to pick yeah. one very specific moment within those three days, right. the, the thing that keeps coming to my mind was when Geronimo G. Jaga, formerly known as Geronimo Pratt, um, when Geronimo G. Jaga unexpectedly showed up at one of the major plenary sessions and walked down the middle aisle to greet everybody. He had just recently been released um, from prison as a, as a, you know, un- unrecognized U S political prisoner. And he just showed up. I don't think, I think only a few people knew he was coming. And the thing I remember the most that stood out because it was so contrary to the political culture of much of the Bay area activists, so-called left at that point was he urged us, he said, y'all need to stroke each other, love each other, you know, support each other, like enjoy each other. Um, and I'm like, fuck, man, like I wish more people would say that shit because like the stuff that happens out here in the Bay is like, it's usually people fucking contesting for territory. It's motherfuckers like Van Jones, right? Trying to front and fake the radicalism and really what they're doing is opportunistic and they want to be on, you know, I thought that dude wanted to be mayor and senator and president, which I think he did. So I think the CNN gig was his, was his like, was his second place. Okay. Um, but that dude was somebody that we, we had to scrap with him all the time because of his opportunism back in the day. And I think it's well known at this point, what his opportunism is shaped like, but, but I'm saying like, there's such a toxic culture of, of, of organizing and activism in the Bay area. I think to a lot of extent it, it, there still is, um, but to have Geronimo Gijaga come out there like that and, and, and just, and just tell us, you know, and you could, you could just feel like light emanating from him and shit, man. Cause this is somebody who did, he did his fucking time as a political prisoner unapologetically. And tell me you know? more. Cause I, th- this is the first time I've heard his name. Okay. Geronimo. So he, so, so in, 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 
the older history textbooks, he'll be known as Geronimo Pratt, right? Okay. That's a slave name. He changed his name to Geronimo Gijaga. The very short version of it is that uh, Geronimo Gijaga, um, you know, working class black man was, was you know, he, he was in Vietnam. He was like well-known. He won medals and shit, like killing so-called Viet Cong and shit. He writes about this, talks about this. Um, the late, he, he passed, the late Geronimo Gijaga. And during his, his, his time in Vietnam is where he began to have this political awakening. And he, the short version of it, he deeply questioned what it was he was engaged in, what it was that he had been militarized uh, to do. And uh, comes, comes back to the United States and repurposes his weapons expertise, his military tactical strategic expertise to support um, the Black Panther Party in particular, Black Liberation Army to a significant extent, um, to support them because they were actually already engaged in asymmetric, um, you know, political and proto-genocidal war with the U.S. government and local police departments. So he's like, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. Right. And he said, here, we're going to do arms training. We're going to do self-defense training. We're going to understand what the tactics are when the police come and they converge. This is how we respond. So Geronimo, Geronimo Gijaga, like he, he was responsible. If it wasn't for Geronimo Gijaga's training, there would have been a lot more um, Panthers and other black folks eliminated by the police, by the CIA, by the combination of the FBI, the police and um, other parts of the U.S. government, including undercover counterintelligence program operations. Um, so that's what he became known for. And then like many other political prisoners during that period, he was, you know, set up to be convicted of something that he, um, I think, factually didn't do. And he and he served multiple decades in prison as a political prisoner, um, unrecognized political prisoner. U.S. doesn't recognize that it holds political prisoners. Um, right. So so that's Geronimo Gijaga. And so he had just been released, you know, I think I think not just I think days before before the critical resistance, you know, movement building session happened in September 1998. And he just that, that and Geronimo Gijaga just showed up. And right, was, in the middle of this, and he it, immediately it was, it was, speaks. So there was yeah, there no, he, space he, made he walked down. Yeah, I think I think a couple people knew he was coming. Okay, so, so there it was, was there like was, there was scheduled that he would talk, but not everyone. No, knew it that. wasn't scheduled. That's what I'm trying to tell you, man. Like okay, I don't okay. think it wasn't even scheduled. It was a surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, middle, the middle of what? Of, do you remember yes, what the session was? Yes, it was one of the evening plenary sessions. So there's like hundreds standing room only, hundreds and hundreds of people in this auditorium. Like everybody's excited and hyped. It's hot. Yeah, you know what I mean, like. Like speakers after speakers, everybody's excited. They're like, we don't know what we're doing. We we weren't even calling it abolition at that point, by the way, right? This is this is this this meeting was about um building a movement of resistance against the prison industrial complex. That was the general language that folks were using. We are trying to build a new movement to resist the existence of the prison industrial complex. And it was the premise of and it was everybody was there, man. Like, you know, attorneys, you young people, meaning people under the age of 18, you know what I mean? Um of course, scholar, you know, professional scholars, longtime community organizers, like civil people involved in the civil rights struggles mm-hmm. from the 60s, from the 50s on forward, formerly incarcerated people. We had like, you know, this is before the days of Zoom and live stream, but we, we had technology set up so we could we could actually have organizing sessions and conversations with people who are currently incarcerated um, for, for wow. some of the prison facilities that allowed that kind of thing. So it was like a whole spectrum of people were there. Um, so it was that kind of room. That was the cross-section of people. This was not a room full of stuffy academics. It was the opposite of that. It was wild. It was a wild room. It was a wild auditorium full of people, excited as hyped up as shit, not knowing quite exactly what we were doing, but just excited as fuck because now we're fighting. Like now we are building. Well, I said, well, all that shit I was saying earlier about the fight, this was what the fight was. We were trying to, we were figuring out what the fight was right there. 
right? Those three, that's why I want to be there for those three days again. We we're figuring out what the fight was. So it's one of those sessions, it's the plenary, which means everybody's supposed to converge there. Nothing else is going on in the meeting except that. Yeah. So like all kind of people are around, they're buzzing around too, right? Outside the room. And I remember in the middle of it, auditorium, lights on, and then like the doors open, it's noisy. So it's not like it was quiet. And then Geronimo Jijaga shows up. It was like right. noisy people talking. And then, and then you just kind of like, it's something that just drew your attention. There's a movement of, of like a small group of people down the middle aisle of the auditorium. And Geronimo Jijaga was walking with a contingent, a small contingent of people that were just watching his back. Um, and then you just heard a buzz and people just started like roaring. Like they couldn't believe he was there. Um, and then he, he took, he took the, the podium and he, he didn't, he didn't talk for very long. And I remember he was, he was so soft-spoken, mm. right? Like in, 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 um, my arrogant 25 year old self learned a lesson in humility at that moment too. Right. Like, like the sense of humility that Geronimo Jijaka had as he spoke was probably the, the thing that impressed me most deeply, even more than the words he actually said. Right. But, but just the sense of humility that, that came from him, which was, you know, I, I don't think I do a great job at it, but I try to, I mean, I try to, I try to find my way into that, but it was, this, this, it was, it could only have come from somebody who unapologetically served several decades as a political prisoner because he was not sorry for having repurposed his U.S. military training um, to support Black liberation struggle and Black radicalism and even Black underground guerrilla war um, for, for the sake. So, I, so if I had to pick one specific, you know, time compressed moment to revisit, it would probably, it would, I think right now, as you talk to me on, you know, May 23rd, 2022, it would probably be that little moment when Geronimo Jijaga came. I would want to be back there because I'd want to, I would want to indulge myself by like introducing myself to him and yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatnot. I didn't get to do that. So I think I'd want to do that because that was the only time I ever got to see him in person. So the question is, what's your coma metaphorically? Like, okay. Right, what is, okay. what is a moment like that for you? where before you were one version of yourself and after, and it can be, it doesn't have to be epic or grandiose. It can be like a tiny little thing and shit just changed. I mean, I I can't, I can't think of anything other than when my two kids were, were born when they entered this realm. (laughs) I can't, I can't, it's like, that's it. Like, that's it. That's, um, you know, there was a part of me that necessarily had to go away. You know, we can say it died. Um, we can all say I killed it. We can say they killed it <laughs> because kids <laughs> fucking kill you, man. Right? I'm just being. I'm just being honest. Like, sure. I'm just, like I feel what's like that, my kids. What's fucking, that part? I'll be. I'll be. I'll be mundane and then deep about it. Right? Yeah. The part that that insisted on nobody eating or leaving trash in my car. Okay. Right? That you do. I'm telling you, like. I think I probably have some obsessive compulsive disorder tendencies. I okay. do not have OCD because I respect the fact that for those of us who struggle with OCD, it's like, it's a serious, you know, it's a, it's an illness, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying I have it, but I definitely have the tendencies. One of the ways in which it manifested was that I needed my car to look and be a particular kind of way. And then the first time that my oldest decided that he was going to take his fucking apple juice box and just chuck it to the side of the minivan and dump that shit on the floor and then piss in his car seat and so much that it overflowed onto the fucking i had to pull man it was one of these you i had a 
we had a used Toyota Sienna. I had to find out, I had to like pull that bench seat off of its anchors and put it on the lawn in order to hose that shit down. Which I didn't even think, I didn't think I would ever have to learn how to do that. Was it like a felt seat or was it like a sort it's of felt. pleather? No, it, okay. No, okay. no, no, no. It was like, so which, this shit stayed in there. Which is yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So never, the piss never went away. No, yeah. I did not warn whoever I sold it to that it had been pissed in. Fucking sue me. Um, but like, I remember that moment. Um, so like, so, so, that's my coma is that my coma is, is like realizing that um, I could not be the same way in the world anymore. And that to whatever extent I try to be, that's why you could say I'm a failed fucking parent. Right. Because like there's parts of me that still survive, uh-huh. but probably should not have survived parenting two people. But I'll say that's the coma. It's like that, that slow, uneven process that I continue to go through that, requires that I put a bunch of shit about who I am and the way I exist aside. All these things I insist on being orderly, right? Like mm. on, on, on existing certain ways. Like, no man, kids are chaos. You know, they actually like that. That is the lesson that you hopefully can learn is like they come in and this, they are chaotic. Like they create disorder and that's their job, man. Cause there are moments where They'll tell you, like, when you snap out of the coma, right? Because this, this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about, like, the fucking dad coma. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Like, those moments where you snap out of the coma is where they fucking tell you. It's like, yeah, I was, I, I fuck with you. I fuck with you because <laughs> I get to. Right? And they laugh about it. They laugh yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, we know you hate that shit. That's why we do it. <laughs> right? And I remember this, like, when my oldest, when he was, like, one, he, one and a half, I don't know, he, he had just started eating solid food in his high chair, um, and, and like, you know, fucking babies are messy and shit. Right. But, but I was like, he was extraordinarily messy, like beyond, I mean, he knows it too. Yeah. yeah. I remember I was looking at him once. I was like, dude, I was, and he fucking, they were, he was just coming into language. So like, he understood what I was saying at mm-hmm. some level. I, I was like, I was like, dude, what, what, why are you making such a mess? And he, this, this kid, baby, he looks me straight dead in my eye, like picks up whatever was on his plate extends his chubby ass right arm all the way out to the side of the high chair as far as it would go and drop that shit on the floor right in front of me. Did he laugh? Deadpan. Yo, deadpan. (laughs) Not even thinking it was fun. He wasn't even laughing. He just looked at me deadpan. He's like, who's the fucking boss now? That's the face I see in your, uh, your headshot. That's the, that's why I have that face in those headshots. Cause I'm somebody's, I'm some people's dad, man. And I'm, you know, I'm a terrible parent. So like, <laughs> so, but I'm saying that's, that's, that's the coma, man. That's the coma. And it's also simultaneously how you come out of it is like, is like when that baby decides that they're going to say, you know what? Fuck you. I'm the boss. Boom. You know, welcome yeah. back to the world. Welcome back to the world, bro. <laughs> that's the show. Thank you very much to dylan rodriguez for coming on the show thank you to you for listening i really appreciate it check out those show notes they are especially packed this week with resources to follow dylan to learn more of his work and to join the patreon which is the best way to support me and the show i would be incredibly grateful and i promise to keep making a great utterly unique fucking podcast Uh, But I say that humbly. Until next week, remember, you are a mist. You are human. Only human. 
and human beings they do 